The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening. And welcome to IMC. It was a pleasure as I entered this evening to hear one uh, person who's here comment that this was the first time they've been at, uh, at IMC in person. And what a pleasure that is. My name's David, David Laurie. Very happy to be here sitting in for Gil tonight. And uh, sitting in with you, sitting, sharing in the Dharma together. I had intended to guide the meditation lightly in the beginning. And then as I looked around at people settling into meditation, I, I, I just felt that that would be superfluous tonight. Sort of, it was very clear that people were settling in and um, finding, finding some nice stillness. A quiet evening, not too many trains passing, not too much traffic or sounds of, sounds of the street. Supportive evening, what the Buddha might call an auspicious, an auspicious evening. So, Gil sometimes comments that um, in the practice we balance effort and allowing. And if you've heard Gil say this, you may have also heard Gil uh, talk about efforting and allowing, just to make a couple para- uh, parallel verbs. And I thought that this evening we might explore a little bit some of the, uh, some of the nuances of this balancing effort and allowing in the practice. Had I guided the meditation, I, I might have, because I sometimes do, bring attention to how even in the, uh, even in the initial uh, entry into the meditative space, even in some of the uh, most foundational instructions in our tradition, there's, a, there's this balancing. There's a balancing and there's a rebalancing. When we close our eyes, for example, if we close our eyes in meditation, we, we rebalance, we sort of re, um, um, refined our inner life among all the, all the noise and activity of the world we engage in with our eyes open. When we bring our eyes down in the meditation, our attention tends to turn, come inward and downward a bit, and we find some aspect of what's happening in the inner world, in our inner life. When we follow the, one of the essential instructions of our practice, when we find that the mind's become sort of contracted around something, when we find that the mind has wandered off, when we find ourselves in daydream, solving problems, searching out solutions, remembering, thinking about other people, thinking about ourselves, you know, the places the mind goes when it's being a mind. 
good and useful places um, at times. When we bring our attention back gently without hurry to to here and now, maybe using the breath as our anchor, returning our attention to the here and now, we're doing this rebalancing. We're sort of, you could say, adding a little effort into the mix, into a mix that maybe had become a little unfocused or a little a little tangled, a little caught up, a little distracted. So what I'd like to do is talk about this just a little bit with a little more detail, having sort of set the stage. I'd like to share a, a, a sutta, one of the Buddha's discourses, this one from the Anguttara Nikaya, the, the collection of discourses ordered by number. And... spend a little time thinking about how when we find ourselves maybe pitched a little far in the uh, direction of effort, a little too overly engaged with various things that come up in our experience, we could bring a little additional ease in. Or maybe, maybe more importantly, when we find ourselves a little settling into the contentment that can come with meditation, settling into the ease, getting a little foggy, fuzzy, a little unclear, a little unfocused, how we might bring a little bit of, uh, um, maybe a little bit of edge, a little bit of uh, attentive curiosity back into the practice. Part of the reason I emphasize that is we emphasize the other a lot. Frequently we talk about what to do with the mind that's overly busy. Sometimes we... um, I think it's useful to look at what we do when the mind gets foggy, daydreamy, or when in the larger picture of our practice we find ourselves becoming complacent or maybe just sort of going along with what can be a very pleasant flow of a meditation practice. Um, Along with this... um, Along with this balancing, there's also a momentum of practice. And a lot of times the momentum of practice is is closely related to this balance. When we find ourselves in a, in a, uh, a, a time in practice or a place in the meditation where we feel a strong leaning toward being more awake in our lives, it can be fairly easy to adjust the balance, to come back to center, to come back to the place where effort and ease, effort and allowing are nicely balanced. And so too, this this attention to momentum uh, can be can be beneficial to the practice, supportive of the practice. Sometimes you'll hear. Gil, and other teachers, Andrea, the co-guiding teacher here, use metaphors to talk about um, balance and practice. And very commonly, the metaphor of riding a bicycle is used. Andrea sometimes uses the metaphor of uh, using a, a kick scooter. I don't know how many people grew up using kick scooters. One thing I found about these metaphors is that they're a little culturally specific. I grew up riding a bike. I guess I had a scooter. 
but not everybody did. And some of the communities I teach in, bicycle riding and scooter kicking, are not actually part of everybody's experience. So I've been trying to find other other metaphors that might be useful. The ones I've come up with tonight, for some reason, are standing and walking. I recognize that even these aren't universally human experiences and, you know, don't want to... Um, would like to be as inclusive as possible. But let me give an example from each of these. Riding a bike, we're going to start with. But when you're riding a bike, um, particularly if you've become good at it, not maybe when you're first learning, we do this, we do this rebalancing extremely um, as, as if it were, as... Um, um, without real effort or attention because it's become so second nature. We, we find that we can um, tip back to balance really without thinking about it. And similarly with the scooter, um, if again, and again, my memory of the scooter is less distinct than the bicycle, a very similar thing when you're, when, when once you've learned, it's, you could say it's like riding a bike. That is, once you've uh, become adept at it, maintaining your momentum, maintaining your balance is second nature. Uh, Standing and walking are similar. And if you do any standing meditation, which I do quite a bit, um, you can um, just enjoy the body's ability to balance without without thinking about it. If you want to... uh, um, experience experience that um, you can sometimes bring greater attention to it by closing the eyes for a period of time and doing it without a support, uh, noticing the body is this incredibly complicated little orchestrated uh, second nature, maintaining balance, maintaining a balance between effort and allowing. The um, these two themes of balance and momentum are can be applied to any scale of the practice that we that we choose it can be true in tonight's sit and it can be true in almost any portion of the sit that as we meditate we find the mind moves off into fogginess or gets caught up in something that needs doing before tomorrow morning or gets distracted by bodily sensation. Perhaps we're hungry or overly full or sleepy. Um, We bring it back to greater alertness. And um, that's happening at this kind of micro scale. In the course of a 45-minute sit, that's going to happen many times. This is a natural part of the meditation. It's important to point out that we don't just establish balance as if it were um, autopilot and then it's set for the rest of the evening or the rest of our practice life, but rather it's something we constantly rebalance, just like on a bicycle, just like on a scooter, just like standing or walking. The balance is constantly being adjusted, constantly being reasserted, constantly being re, um, refound. It also works on the on the scale of the whole practice, where um, bringing ourselves back periodically in touch with our fundamental intentions for the practice 
balances a tendency to, over time, sort of take it for granted, maybe not be as focused in it, kind of frequently settle into the pleasantness of it if we find it largely pleasant, and lose a little bit of the um, the uh, sort of the maybe the growing edge or where the the edge of the practice is, where there's something still to be discovered of interest, something that may be disturbing. Sometimes when there's a sense of um, stasis or staticness in the practice, there's some avoidance, something that we maybe have a little aversion to seeing or something that's frightening. So it can work from this very intimate scale, a very micro scale of a, of a portion of a sit. It can work on the scale of the, of the whole practice. I said earlier that one thing, uh, I think we tend to focus a lot on the busy mind, the mind that gets caught up in things, distracted by things, lost in things, wanders off, uh, and sometimes don't, maybe don't look as closely at, at the mind that, that daydreams or that gets fuzzy and unfocused. And this can be particularly something uh, in the evening. And I thought of this in particular because this is a um, rather late time for me to sit. And um, I had a little a little uh, cup of tea beforehand so that I wouldn't nod, nod off during an evening meditation. But I wanted to... Uh, share with you a, uh, a sutta that talks about dozing off and in which the Buddha gives one of his principal disciples some advice about what to do when one finds one's mind becoming unfocused, unclear, daydreamy, and perhaps dozing off. It's, uh, it, it, it's a sutta that provides some tips that we can apply to the micro level to like what to do in meditation if you find yourself dozing off sometimes, which possibly we all have from time to time. Or if on the larger scale, we find ourselves becoming a little complacent in our practice. Again, sometimes we focus on over-striving in the practice. Sometimes we get a little bit... Um, I don't know if lazy is the right word, sounds sort of pejorative, but a little complacent, a little, a little maybe overly content. This sutta tells us, I think, provides some good, good and wise tips about sort of that work at both these levels. So let me read it, I'm, and I'm going to read it selectively, and then go back and make a couple comments about it. So this is, uh, this is uh, for those following at home. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya, from the Book of Sevens. And it's the 61st Sutta in the Book of Sevens. So, Anguttara Nikaya 761. And it's called, appropriately, Dozing. And I'm going to, as I read it, I'm going to correct for gender. And I typically correct for some, a lot of the discourses, as you know, are shared with monastic followers of the Buddha, and sometimes a little correction for lay practitioners is useful. In this case, I think it works fine as it is. It begins, as so many suttas does, with the phrase, Thus have I heard. On one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was dwelling among the Bhagas at Sumsuma Ragira in the deer park at Besakala Grove. And on this occasion, the venerable Mahamogalana was sitting 
in meditation and dozing off. And some of you know, may know that Moggallana, Maha Moggallana, Moggallana the Great, is one of the Buddha's principal followers, um, equal to Sariputta in his, uh, uh, his importance in the early practice community. So here we have a senior practitioner, somebody who's practiced a lot, sitting and dozing, and the Buddha notices this, that in the back of the room could be Nancy, but it's Maha, Maha Nancy who has dozed off, and the teacher has noticed and uh, approaches and says, are you dozing, Moggallana? Have you been dozing off, sitting in meditation? Meditation, and Moggallana confesses. He doesn't confess. It doesn't say that. He just says, yes, Bhante, yes, teacher. The Buddha says, because we're in the Book of Sevens, he gives seven tips, seven ideas, seven maybe practice suggestions, as a, as a teacher might. Moggallana, you could attend, uh, you could, yeah, yeah, yeah. Moggallana, perhaps you should try not attending or cultivating the object that you were attending to when you became drowsy. Perhaps by this means it will be possible that your drowsiness will be abandoned. If this doesn't work, if you're unable to abandon your drowsiness in this way, you could ponder, examine, and mentally inspect the Dhamma as you have heard it and learned it. And perhaps by this means, your drowsiness will be abandoned. If this doesn't work, if you find yourself unable to abandon your drowsiness with this technique, you could recite in detail the Dhamma as you have heard it and learned it. And perhaps by this means, it is possible that your drowsiness will be abandoned. If this doesn't work, you could pull both your ears and rub your limbs with your hands, and perhaps by this means, uh, abandon your drowsiness. If this doesn't work, you should get up from your seat Rub your eyes with water, look around in all directions, look up at the constellations and stars, and by this means, it's possible that your drowsiness will be abandoned. If you cannot abandon your drowsiness in this way, you should attend to the perception of light. You should undertake the perception of day thus, as by day, so at night, and as as at night, so by day. And thus, with a mind that is open and uncovered, you should develop a mind imbued with luminosity, with light. And by this means, possibly, your drowsiness will be abandoned. If this fails, you can undertake the exercise of walking meditation, walking back and forth, perceiving what is behind you and what is in front, with your sense faculties drawn in and your mind collected. And by this means, possibly, your drowsiness will be abandoned. And then finally, there's one more, and this is the punchline. He says, but if you cannot abandon your drowsiness in any of these ways, take a nap. He doesn't say it quite like that. But if you cannot abandon your drowsiness in these ways, 
you should lie down on your right side in the lion's posture, with one foot overlapping the other, mindful, clearly comprehending, and noting in your mind the idea of rising. When you awaken, get up quickly and think, I won't be intent on the pleasure of rest, the pleasure of sleep, but rather return to practice. It is in this way, Mogalana, that you should train yourself. So there's a lovely set of instructions and tips here presented in this very supportive way um, that I think... um, provide a sense that uh, that there's nothing unusual or, uh, in this kind of experience. Nothing wrong has happened. Nothing's gone wrong in the meditation. The practitioner hasn't done anything wrong, but rather that one of the um, natural aspects of our practice is this kind of occasional um, drowsiness, if we're thinking about it at that small scale, or complacency or lack of focus in the practice on a maybe on a broader scale. And we can go back and just look at a few of these. I want to make sure to leave some time to, uh, for people to ask questions or raise, uh, share reflections or anything else. Um, but the first one here, uh, you, shouldn't, you should not attend to or cultivate the object that you're attending to when you became drowsy. Very interesting suggestion. We we tend in our practice to get very um, used to a particular object. And yet, as we know from, for example, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Sutta on various ways and um, various approaches to establishing mindful attention in the here and now, that there are a whole host of practices, a whole host of objects, a whole host of um, ways to cultivate the practice of mindful attention, the practice of open uh, um, awareness and it's an interesting suggestion that if drowsiness is there perhaps shifting your attention in various ways can be a useful remedy or a useful way to spark a little bit of uh, greater alertness in the practice even with drowsiness sometimes there can be a great a great deal of kind of um um, very um, sort of small or laser focus on the breath and it can be useful to broaden the focus. Uh, so I think there are many ways that, that, that this advice could be brought into play. It may also be useful in the broader scale of practice. We get caught up in a certain practice. You can do a practice for years and complacency can set in and finding with the guidance of a teacher some additional ways to bring support into the practice can be very beneficial the second one uh, says if you cannot abandon your drowsiness or your complacency I'm going to sort of add that in in this way you can ponder examine and mentally inspect the Dhamma as you have heard it and understood it and this is true in a, uh, a sit, but it's also true in the bigger practice, that it can be very useful if you're starting to find yourself drowsy to bring attention to a teaching that uh, is relevant to whatever's going on in your, in your sit or in your larger practice. Uh, not sure I can think of an example at the moment, but um, 
it can be useful, here's an example, to, and I think I mentioned something like this a few moments ago, to notice whether the drowsiness has aversion in it. To notice whether there's something that doesn't feel comfortable to see or know. Uh, or if there's a, um, if there's a attachment to bodily comfort that's there in the meditation that's kind of part of the drowsiness or daydreaminess. If there's ideation in the daydream, it can be very useful to notice where, where's the, how much wanting, how much selfing is happening in the daydreaming as I envision myself in a different position with um, different accomplishments, different friends, <laughs> different, um, you know, different attributes that uh, somehow are puffing me up. So even in the drowsiness, there can be aspects of the teaching that if we bring our attention to it, can sort of bring us back to, back to, the, back to the, the here and now. If this doesn't work, this is a slight change. We can recite in detail the Dhamma as we have heard it and learned it. In other words, we can ponder, examine, mentally expect it, or we can recite it. And this one is useful to bring forward into our time. At that time, reciting was the way, in a sense, you read or reread the Dhamma. You would chant a sutta, if you were a monk at any rate. And that would be a way of, in a sense, re-engaging with what we would think of as a text. But this could direct us to a text. And in a sit, it can be very useful. You're drowsy, or just before you sit down, to read a paragraph from a book, or a sentence, or... Um, a poem, but somehow to re-engage with a textual reference or the language of the teaching. Obviously, this can be true at the sort of larger scale of practice that we can pick up a book we've read before or listen to a podcast or, you know, go on retreat online or offline and in that way sort of re-engage with formal teaching. I think that's the distinction that's being drawn here in these two. The ones that follow, uh, I think we could stretch them to that larger scale, but they're mostly, I think, useful for actual sitting with drowsiness or uh, unfocus in the mind. I have found, I have to share, that pulling the earlobes is a really good uh, solution for drowsiness. And if, particularly if you're in a place where it's not appropriate to just lie down and take a nap, which as we know is recommended by the Buddha. Um, we'll get to that in a moment. Rubbing the earlobes is a really good, uh, and who knows why this works, because the earlobes don't have a lot of, you know, we don't really think about them very much, but if you spend some time twisting your ears and pulling your earlobes, uh, it can bring quite a bit of alertness into your sit uh, if you find yourself nodding off and you're sort of thinking that that's maybe um, something you want to, you don't want to nod off and fall over. Um, the following one, standing up, rubbing your eyes, looking around. I don't know if other people have tried this, but if you're drowsy in a sit, standing up for a couple minutes and sitting back down can really bring some additional energy. The following one, opening your eyes and letting some light in, can be very useful. Um, and we typically, even at night, this has this interesting passage about as by day, so at night, so at night. I mean, uh, as at night, so by day. Not sure exactly what that means. 
but the um, in our world, you know, I'm just looking at those halogen lights over there. Um, there's usually a source of light, even at night, even in a retreat setting, where we can open our eyes a little bit, bring some light in, and in that way, um, bring some alertness back into the meditation. Or standing up and walking, you know, doing doing some walking meditation. There's no rule that says at home, if you're drowsy, you, you can't get up and walk around. Even here, it's... Um, if it's not disruptive to others, getting up and taking a few paces, sitting back down can be entirely um, uh, can 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 wake up the practice. And about the nap, I would just say, and here here too, I I uh, um, sort of can refer to something Gill says a lot. Gill, let me think. How does he put it? In the intro class to meditation, he frequently comments that more than mindfulness meditation, Americans need a nap, something like that. And it's very true in our culture with, uh, you know, with uh, artificial light and self-medicating with caffeine throughout the day. You know, we extend our days in a quite unnatural way. And I think we think we get away with it, but sooner or later we notice it not infrequently in meditation. It's not uncommon, as you all maybe remember when you first sat to meditate, that uh, along with noticing how incredibly busy the mind is, you may have noticed how fatigued both mind and body are. And that can still be there. Um, and just being aware of that fatigue and making sure that it's, that it's um, addressed as a support to practice, as the Buddha counsels Moggallana, the idea is to take a brief nap as a way of supporting practice so that it, it, uh, that sort of addressing the natural fatigue of body and mind can be, um, can be part of practice. So let me leave a few minutes for questions and I would just say this. This is a lovely little sutta. It's fun to read. Um, it's, it shows the Buddha in a lighter moment, perhaps, or at least uh, giving very gentle guidance to a senior practitioner who has, I think, in in whom we can, in, in whom and in whose practice we can see ourselves very easily. Um, and it's uh, in addition to giving these sort of tips and tricks and techniques, I think it does point to some of the deeper aspects of practice. The idea, as I said earlier in the evening, that the practice is always about not not setting a balance and expecting it to stay, but constantly rebalancing, constantly looking for ways to add additional curiosity, inquisitiveness, uh, looking, being attentive, being present, but at the same time doing that in a way where there isn't a lot of for and against, where there's ease noticing as we do when we ride a bicycle or a scooter or when we walk or stand, just noticing when things are slightly out of balance and then coming back into balancing. To the extent that that becomes second nature, it's useful even to be aware of that process happening when it's very, very subtle. When we follow it, we, 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 we keep that momentum going because in that balancing there is there is directionality. That is that is a path that leads toward awakening. 
toward ease, toward contentment of a deep sort. And so this idea of keeping attuned to the balance of effort and allowing in the practice really is a way to keep moving toward the um, direction that frequently we, in some sense, hold as our fundamental intention for the practice and perhaps for our the way we take our practice into the world. So let me leave, leave it there and then ask if there are any questions or anything that anybody would like to share. We probably have a couple microphones we can pass around and I can repeat questions if, if not. Are there any questions, any reflections, any thoughts? Nancy? Hi, thank you. Um, during retreats, I have um, usually a difficult time sleeping in the evening and then in the morning sit, usually the 6 a.m. sit, um, I doze off immediately. <laughs> and I, I'm, I notice that by the end of the retreat, like a week-long retreat, I'll do better at staying awake early, but um, I'll just be exhausted by the end of the retreat. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that phenomenon. Oh, gosh. Um, it's funny because for every, for every Nancy with that experience on retreat, there's the other, you know, there's the other half, right? There's the, uh, what would it be, the larks, right? As opposed to the, the night owls. Um, but it would be, a, you could ask the same question from that perspective, uh, people who find, like I, quite quite the opposite, you know, quite alert in the morning. And, um, and it's interesting, I've actually, I actually use these approaches a lot. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't read about them, all of them here first, you know, they were recommended also by teachers. But I think um, what we find frequently, either in the evening or in the morning, is that we're sort of fighting that experience instead of um, integrating it into the practice. Uh, among other things, it's okay to nod off. We don't usually fall over and hurt ourselves. Everybody does it, so nobody cares on retreat. That is, you know, people nod off through the course of the day, particularly in the first few days. So there's, just like the Buddha and Mogalana, there's, a, I think, a sense of supportive environment to the experiences that come up in the, in the retreat. Um, the last advice, which is actually eighth, and even though it's in the Book of Sevens, taking a nap. Um, there's usually time during the day to take a nap. I always take a nap on retreat after doing the dishes after lunch, usually. Um, and so, you know, you can make that part of your practice. But anyway, I think the main, my main thing is there's no, you haven't described a problem. <laughs> you know, um, very much as this is seen, the Buddha doesn't see this as a problem, but he has some ideas for kind of how to keep alertness there. Having said that, if you were to find, and I can say this to you knowing something of your practice, uh, just that if you were to find that in that repeated pattern there's some complacency right or some something that it's not ready to be seen yet that you feel like yeah you want to and i i don't know that i think that's there but 
you know, that, that would be a useful thing to know. And that's another reason to look at that drowsiness, you know, with some curiosity instead of some judgment, like, oh, instead of this shouldn't be happening. Oh, is there anything else going on here or am I just tired? Am I just a night owl? And if you were to find something like that, you know, that's a good thing to bring into your practice too uh, with the support of your teacher. Yeah. Other questions? Reflections? Jim. Oh, thank you, David, for your talk. You know, my I think a lot about being sleepy in the morning. And actually, I kind of find that there's something that happens in that liminal space between being asleep and being awake where things do kind of present themselves to me in a way that they don't if I'm upright and alert and paying attention. You know, it's kind of like there might be things that... Yep. You know, are, are kind of in that liminal space. So a lot of my practice has kind of been in that sort of dream state between mm-hmm. sleep and awake. And I was wondering if you've had that experience or might have something to say about it. Yeah, yeah. And what what you point to, I think, is uh, is a is a really productive way to bring in, integrate that into practice, which is to notice w- w- what's going on in that in that realm, which. Sometimes when we receive the encouragement to return attention to the breath, uh, it's done in such a way that we move, we move our attention back to the breath too quickly. And we miss noticing where the mind's gone. And whether the mind's gone, you know, it's gotten all tangled up in some, you know, compulsive spiral of thought, or whether it's found itself in daydream. And I'm, I've also found it very useful to be attentive to I say daydream but I know the liminal space you're talking about that's sort of between it's in a way it's beyond daydream you know toward but but you know maybe there's random things that happen in mind but I think more likely than not there are things that happen there that can be usefully noticed so anyway I think you know, the instruction always is to notice what's going on, be curious about what's going on, be present for what's going on in a way that um, can sort of integrate that experience instead of push it away or hold on to it. Um, so it sounds, sounds like good, sounds like good practice. Mm. Yeah. Other thoughts? Other questions? It's hard to tell with masks on quite how alert everybody is and uh, maybe how apt the advice of the Buddha to Moggallana is. Um, I'm alert now because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sitting up here, but um, yeah, I think... Uh, I think we can say again. Oh, that's a good question. I don't even know how this works. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me, Nancy, that there's a larger audience. Yeah. Yeah. 
Any other thoughts, reflections from the YouTube audience or the audience here? Okay, so I can just um, try to think if there's any closing thought, any uh, beyond, you know, making sure you get your rest. <laughs> Take that nap that the Buddha recommends that Moggallana takes. Um, it's funny because uh, we, we underestimate the importance of that piece of sage advice from 2,500 years ago. Uh, I think um, I've already sort of summed up these things, but let me do it in sort of the manner of offering uh, the merit of the practice this evening and just um, suggesting that we bring this aspect of our practice, this aspect of bringing attention to the balance that Gil uh, has mentioned and that I've just sort of been riffing on this evening between effort and allowing, that 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 that's something we, we take out into the world with us and make make that part of balancing our practice something that we we do in a way uh, and do with the intention of benefiting benefiting others. And there's probably many ways that this could be thought of, but I think um, being curious about other people, being open to other people's experiences, you know, being... Uh, Listening with an open heart uh, can be part of that sort of making that effort. And the allowing can be, as we look around the world, allowing our hearts to break, allowing our minds to be as open as they can, um, allowing ourselves to ask for help and give help, allowing ourselves to care, be cared for. So with that in mind, um, may all beings be safe, secure. May all beings be healthy in body and mind. May all beings be free from suffering and the roots of suffering. May all beings be at ease, content. May all beings be free. So thank you, and thanks for coming, whether for the first time, the last time, uh, hundredth time. Yeah, good to see everybody. Take care. <laughs>